Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I'm really glad that you're here, and if, if you're here every week, I'm so glad that you're here. If this is your very first Sunday, I am so glad that you're here, and uh, I hope as we open the Word, we're actually going to be in quite a few places today. It's going to be a little bit of a different kind of, of message. Uh, I'm not, I don't tip, typically prone, my favorite type of preaching is not topical, uh, it's more exegetical, like breaking a passage down, but, uh, but today we're going to be a little more topical than normal, and, uh, and so I uh, pray that you'll listen as a hearer and just see what the Spirit says to us, be in a lot of, a lot of different places. Uh, the first, and again, these, these won't necessarily be behind me, uh, but I just want, I'm going to read them to you, and I want you to see some consistency in them, okay? Uh, and you'll see it quick. You'll, you'll, you'll get it quick. I know that you will. Uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that, and, it will, and you will receive it, and it will be yours, First uh, John chapter three verse twenty two. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. First John five fourteen and fifteen. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. John fifteen seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, it's pretty easy to see the consistency in what uh, Jesus and the apostles are, are referring to. They're talking about ask whatever you want and God's going to do it. But you begin to see all of the conditions that are placed upon all of these verses. If you see all of them in context, each one of them has, has a catch, has a, a, a condition, an if, or a, or a you know, for, for whose benefit, especially this, this last one. Listen, whatever you ask in my, in my name, this I will do. Why, would, why is God motivated for that? For your benefit? No, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So we begin to align our prayers with where, where God says, I mean, if, if God were to say, if Jesus were to tell us, here's prayers that God will answer, we probably would begin to say, well, I want my prayers answered, so I want to align with how he tells me to pray. And yet, so often we align our prayers with how we feel and what we want rather than the prayers that God obviously has said, I will, I will always do it. I will always answer. And so you have to meet the conditions. We don't get, when God created us, I think sometimes we think as his creation, we place ourselves as the apple of his eye. And I don't think that's, you know, far-fetched. I think that's probably true. But as if we were the goal of creation. And I would, I would offer to you, I think scripture is pretty clear, we are not the, the point of creation. A relationship is the point of creation. Like, like a, a good, happy life, a, a pleasurable, comfortable life, great byproduct, but it's not the point. 
The point of creation was so that God could create us for a relationship with him. Therefore, God then, a relationship, a communion with him, is the point of our existence. And yet there are so many things that occupy places in our lives that kind of distract us away from that from time to time. What I want to start with today is to say our will, it's our, our will is to be selfish and to only consider the immediate felt need of any given moment. And so we have a natural draw to only see things from our own limited, I might say. We sometimes have a little inflated view of our own perspective. We have a very limited perspective and we can only see the sliver that applies to us. And so our first fight is to get others, including God, to see it and to respond to our perspective as well. You think about any argument in politics or even in natural life, we're always trying to get people to see our point of view and very rarely do we ever want to see someone else's point of view. But, but it seems that God is very intentional in trying to get us to, to just relish in his presence and his glory and his ways and understanding. That seemed kind of incredibly, you know, God's kind of anti-us being selfish and yet at the same time wants everything to be about him. And so it's like, well, I don't want you to be selfish because I'm going to be selfish. And so a lot of people think of God being selfish. But the truth of the matter is that might be true if his ways weren't perfect and if his ways weren't good and he knows that what he wants is what's best for us. Then I would say he is selfish. But because God wants him for us, that actually makes him very unselfish because he's not being about him. He's being about us. But there are conditions that we must meet for that. So obviously, our way seems best to us. You can go into the Old Testament and you see Israel many, many times doing what is right in their own eyes, doing what is right to themselves. But our way leads to death and to misery, at least differing degrees of death and misery. Our way almost always because it's selfish, leads away from his glory. I don't, it doesn't really matter how you spin it or how you justify it. If you do what pleases you, it will take you away from what pleases him. So Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Now that sounds like a pretty awesome thing. Call to me and I'm going to just dazzle your socks off. That's one of the reasons why Israel didn't wear socks. Um, But the truth of the matter is, this is a pretty negative context. What's getting ready to happen is severe judgment. And what God is saying is, I'm going to give you a heads up on some terrible things that's coming if you call upon me. Otherwise, they're going to take you by storm. Uh, So we read this in a very positive way. God's going to reveal some things that are awesome, but what's getting ready to happen is, is severe judgment. But the truth of it is exactly the same. It's a selfless call upon God that is a prerequisite to bring enlightenment into our life. A selfless call that aligns with his will where he is able to commune back with us and to give us the desires of our heart so long as the desire of our heart is the desire of his heart. So often we call upon the Lord because we want to know whatever, or we want selfish things. 
But those don't line up with the prayers that God promises that he'll answer. So I want you to take some notes on this, and I want you to go back and, and, and read them for yourself. And I'm actually going to run through these relatively quickly. When I say relatively quickly, I hope that you understand relatively quickly for me. Okay, so that's a condition. James chapter 4, verse 3. It says this, You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Is this a prayer verse? Not a trick question. Yeah, it's a prayer verse. He's talking about how to get your prayers answered. Listen to what he says. You ask and you're not receiving. Why? Because you're, you're asking in the wrong direction. You're asking that you can spend it on your own pleasures instead of to the glory of God. So the, here is a natural prayer that, will, that God will not answer. Now, he will hear prayer. He will not answer a prayer so that you may spend it on your own pleasure. Because your own pleasure takes you away from his glory. Why would God... Answer a prayer that takes you away from him. Our prayers are naturally self-seeking. That's why I think sometimes we ought to, we ought to sit down in our prayer. Now listen, <clears throat> I think we pray, make prayer very magical or mystical, I should say, and like it's, it's some moving target. But you know, what if we were to just sit down and pray and, and just be really you know, sincere and just say, Lord, what would you want me to pray about today? Is, is a relationship with God two-way? Yeah, a relationship with God works both ways, right? God wants a relationship with us. We want a relationship with him. We commune with him. He communes with us, right? We believe this, right? I, this was going to be the last sermon on prayer, but I think we might need to camp out on prayer for a while if we don't know that our relationship with God is a relationship, right? So... So if this is true, what if we were to just sit down every day and just say, Lord, what would you want me to pray about today? And what if he told you? You ever ask him what he wants you to pray for? Or do you just know that that's a box you have to check every day or a couple times a day or as often as you think of it? How do I know what God wants? Well, the same way you know what anybody wants. You spend time with them, you get to know them. And you ask them, what do you want from me, Lord? How can I pray? How can I align my life up with yours? Because if you just stumble into the throne room and start giving him your list, James 4.3 says, you're not going to be answered. And guess who gets the blame for being out of alignment? The Lord gets the blame for being out of alignment because God never answers my prayer. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have separated you between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not, what? Hear. Will not, not cannot, will not hear. So if we're going to be arrogant enough to think that you're going to live according to your will and then have an effective prayer life, like you're going to bend God's will with sin in your life, I mean, God's not going to answer. He will not. That's a matter of his intentionality. Will not hear. If Christians are walking around knowing that there's sin in their life, and sometimes Christians walking around knowing that, not knowing that there's sin in their life, 
It's one of the, one of the reasons you sit down in your prayer and say, Lord, how do you want me to pray today? Sometimes he may reveal through conviction of the Holy Spirit some sin that is separating you from him. And I'm not saying every time you commit sin, you lose your salvation. This is not a salvation message. This is about communion with an almighty God, right? And so if I want to be in a communion with God and in a, a proper prayer life where I am aligning my life with him and seeing his glory and my life is beginning to order itself out, I need to know if there's some obstacles in my life that I need to purge. And whatever happened to old-fashioned conviction where people actually would feel something and grieved in their spirit when there was sin in their life? Now we just excuse it. We put some kind of acronym to it. We call it some kind of a disorder, and we move on, and we say, well, that's just the way God made me. But, But there needs to be a time where we sit down into the presence of God and say, Lord, is there any wicked way in me? Reveal it to me. And he might. Especially if we're already committed to purging it out of our life. David prays that often. You see David praying it, Lord, re- remove, you know, wash away my transgressions, you know, restore me. You see that in a lot of the prophets where they are lamenting life. And when they begin getting into the Father, forgive me, you know, and it's all of a sudden it's, it starts shifting. The whole, the whole conversation begins to shift into great is thy faithfulness. Because it's after we deal with the sin and our thoughts or sin and our attitudes... It's like we begin to see God completely different. Search me, what David said, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart, because I don't know it. You ever think about that? Think of everything about being keenly aware of your own life and thinking that you actually know what is a sin and what's not a sin. But it's in that, it's in that alignment with God in prayer where he is able to kind of prick our hearts and help us to understand what is sin? Where does that thought come from? Why, why am I, why do I think that way? And I can begin to align with him. You see, prayer, prayer brings about alignment. We've been talking about that. Alignment, though, brings about surrender. Surrender brings about repentance, and repentance brings about the ability to see God's glory. But if we're not living lives of repentance then we're not seeing God's glory. And if God's glory is sort of shut off for us, then the only option we have is to be able to pursue our own glory. And sometimes because we have a little inflated view of ourself, we start thinking that our glory is God's desire. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. Son of man, these men have taken idols into their heart and put a stumbling block of iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired by them at all. In other words, if you're harboring an idol in your life, uh, don't, you know, you're just wasting energy uh, praying. It's pretty much what he says. Should I be inquired of the, at all by them? God will not answer prayer if there's anything in your life that's more important than him. You don't have to call it an idol. All you have to do is acknowledge that, that if your life is tyranny of the urgent... There's probably a reason for that. And sometimes we just need to stop, slow down, and remember that there is nothing more important to me than my personal time and relationship with God. Everything orders out of that. If your life is hurried and chaotic, it's because you're trying to order it out yourself and manage it all. And you're not built to be the manager. He is. You cannot refuse to listen to God and expect Him to answer our prayers. 
Proverbs 21, verse 13, whosoever stops his ears to the cry of the poor, he shall cry himself, but shall not be, what? Heard, but I won't hear him. Arrogance, selfishness, a lack of serving, a lack of helping, or refusing to bend the knee to serve someone. This, this is at the heart of, of the greatest hindrances to a, a, a prayer life. The lack of liberality, the lack of compassion. You know, why do we fail to, to respond to the needs of those around us? Either we're judging them. And, and of course, you, you know, we know when, when we're judging people, we're, we're comparing them to ourselves. So, you know, I, I can tell you when, you, when you judge people as compared to God, you will have sympathy for people. When you judge people compared to yourself, it's arrogance. And you will shut up your ability to help. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. When you see someone, if you compare them to what they could have in God or compare what God wants for them, you will bend the knee. But if you compare them to who you are, you're probably going to turn your back and walk away. So it's reveals, it's what it reveals. Whoever stops his ear to the crowd, it's not actually about how much money you give to a poor person. It's to the crowd of the poor. And eventually you're going to come to a point where you need and you're going to be desperate and you're going to cry out to the Lord and he's going to say, no, you you got it. You're tough. You're good. You're independent. At Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be put in your lap. For the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That's the positive part of this promise. So you see, every if you go and look, you see every generous person is able to understand the glory of God that flows out of their prayer life. But a stingy person, and I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about serving, caring, missional, is, is people of prayer. She said, the more time you spend with the Lord, the more of him you'll see in others. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. If you got a, there's an issue between you and someone that your Father, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So there is a, uh, a spirit of bitterness that comes with entitlement. Again, it's a self-focus, not a God-focus, not a glory-focus. But a spirit of, of, of bitterness will destroy not only a person's life, but a person's prayer life. You see, a spirit of bitterness and a spirit of prayer can't, can't reside in the same person. You can't be. This is one of the reasons why God tells us to pray for our enemies, to pray for those that use us, to pray for those that abuse us. Is because as we pray for people, our hearts are leveled out with them. I mean, everything about our faith is dependent upon forgiveness with Him. Right? I'm not going to spend. I could spend days here. I think we most of us really struggle with this. But when we when we forgive someone. Uh, and again, you've probably heard me say this before, maybe, but when we forgive someone, it's really not about this person deserving forgiveness. Forgiveness is a place that we can come to when we actually hand the, the, uh, the, the event or the wound and we hand it over to the Lord for him to take care of it. That's what forgiveness really is. 
Forgiveness isn't, okay, well, that person's really sorry now. Or, or this person, you know, I've, I've, I've let them have it long enough. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is when you finally give it over to the Lord for him to handle it. And you can just be free from it. So if, if that's true, and I believe it is, then there is never a reason for us to harbor unforgiveness unless we're not trusting him and we trust our wound and uh, our vic- being victimized more than we, than we value his, his care. Jesus said if we do not forgive, what? Any, any. If you have ought against any. Everybody wants to put theirs as the worst, but Jesus said, we'll just cut to the chase. Any. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I really want to sit down right now uh, and, and read this one to you. Uh, you husbands. And I would also say, maybe, maybe this is interchangeable with wives as well. So let's pretend like it is, because I think it's just good practice. But certainly for husbands, it's because of the nature of the gender roles in the home. You husbands, in like manner, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. In other words, you just, just pay attention and use your noodle. Giving honor unto the woman as unto the weaker vessel. That weaker doesn't mean strength-wise. It means that the husband is the spiritual leader of the home. And also as joint heirs to the grace of life. So it's not weaker vessel and joint heirs. It's to the weaker vessel as in it's your responsibility to do the spiritual nurturing. But your joint heirs in Christ, equal in Christ. To the end that your prayers are not hindered. You see that? How a husband is the spiritual caregiver to his wife at home affects a person's prayer life. If there's tension in the home, if there's a lack of leadership in the home, if there's no, if there's no uh, care and nurture and compassion and leadership, if there's division and improper structuring and negligence and abdicating or tyrant or whatever the case may be, don't, don't, that man can't come to the Lord and pray. Your prayer life's going to be hindered in a major way if there's not harmony in the home. You want to have leadership somewhere else? You better start in your home. You want to have a good prayer life out in public or a good prayer life at church? Forget it if you can't model that at home. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and upbraids not. It be given to him, but let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. For he that doubts is like a surge of a sea driven by the wind and tossed. Let that man not think that he will receive anything of the Lord. So this one, this one cuts a little bit, a little bit deeper. Prayers are hindered. A prayer life is hindered by instability, by the hot and cold of life, by, the, by the, the, the heating up and the cooling down, because that that ultimately is belief or unbelief. So there's so many times in our life we wonder, why is my prayer life not effective? Well, it's no matter, no, no wonder, because on all of these things where a scripture, these are the seven things, the Bible's very clear, if these are in your life, 
your prayer life's going to be hindered. Why are we dissatisfied with our prayer life? Well, here's the list. And we need to consider those. Prayers are hindered because of our, of our unfaithfulness and because of our unbelief and because of our instability. And God wants us to be consistent with his people and with his word. Not just in his word, with him. So in prayer, we have to learn how to ask the right things for the right reasons from the right place. And sometimes the hardest thing is we say, you know, God always answers prayer, right? Uh, sometimes he says yes, no, or not now, or, you know, wait, or whatever people say. But if God says no or wait, those are kind of not acceptable. Because right, when we say God doesn't answer my prayer, it's only if God doesn't say yes, right? We don't say, yeah, God answered. He said no. We say, you know, God didn't answer my prayer because he didn't say yes, we don't even consider really aligning with his no or aligning with his not yet. We only consider aligning with his yes because that has us as the center, right? So I want to leave you with an, an illustration. It's a little complicated uh, illustration, but I'm going to take you to the scripture. First, I want you to go to Numbers chapter 22, okay? Numbers 22 And I'm going to show you something that kind of is not very, I mean, not completely obvious. It will be obvious after today. Um, I'm going to go to King Balak. King Balak was the king of Moab. Uh, he deals with this question of perspective in prayer like, like dead on. Being able to see life from your perspective or from God's perspective. And it's kind of hidden too. So, I would like for you to take notes and go back and check. Numbers 22, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, Pethor, near the river in the land of the people of Amal, to come to him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. This is Balak's message to Balaam. They cover the face of the earth, and they are a dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he who bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So this is at the end of the 40-year uh, wandering of Israel in the wilderness. They're almost to the promised land. They just won an incredible military victory against two mighty kings. Uh, uh, Sihon is the king of Heshbon. You do not have to write this down, okay? And Og, who was king of Bashan. They, were, they shouldn't have won those, and they won incredibly. Both of these are Amorite people. So when he says the Amorites, these are at least the two major, major uh, groups of people that, that were destroyed by Israel. 
the Amorites were descendants of Emur, who was the great, great grandson of Noah through, through Ham and Canaan. They had wandered now far away from Yahweh, from God, the Elohim, that they had been taught by Noah by faith. And now they are far away and they're worshiping other gods. Now, here's where Balak, king of Moab, comes in. He's the, Moab is the, uh, was a son, if you remember uh, genealogy, Moab is a son of Lot, who was a nephew to Abraham. We go all the way back. I only say that to say these are not like pagan people. I mean, foreign people. These are like cousins that, 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 that many generations later are far away from where Israel is with God. Israel stays very close God is one, Jehovah is his name, and all of these other cousins have wandered off into paganism and, and idolatry. So, Balak's perspective here, I want you to see what, what, what did he see. You go back to verse 1, what did he see? Everything that was done by Israel. Everything that was done by who? Look at verse 1. By who? Israel. According to Balak, who does the doing? It's really important. I need some help. Who does the doing? Israel. Okay. On their own, these are very common words. Saw everything that was done. Very common words. Uh, however, the very last time that anyone saw in Scripture everything that was done was another non-Israelite who watched Israel mow down foes. It's the last time we hear these words together. It's a connector to those things, okay? The last time we saw that was Jethro. Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses. It's really important, okay? We're going to get to that in just a second. So Balak is the son of Zippor. Some of you love the history, so this one is specifically for you, okay? So later to say, oh, I love it when you do that. The others of you, just wait till next week. It's going to get a lot better, okay? So Balak's the son of Zippor. Believe it or not, 40 years ago when we run into Jethro, his daughter's name Zippor that married Moses. There's another connection here with these two people. So what are, I always tell Isaac, what are the odds of that? He'll say, what are the odds of that? 100%, because that's the way it happened, right? So uh, Jethro is the high priest of Midian. Who does Balak immediately go to to say, I need some help here? The elders of Midian. Is we, what, what the scriptures is doing is setting up a, here's another opportunity for another Jethro. If you remember, when uh, this is in <clears throat> Exodus chapter 18, when Israel is coming out, verse 1, in fact, when Israel comes out, well, we'll, we'll get to it in a second, okay? Let's look at, let's look at it, uh, Exodus 18, 1. I'm just going to read it. <clears throat> and Jethro, the priest of Midian, the father-in-law of Moses, heard Everything Now, according to Balak, who does the doing? Israel, right? Jethro heard everything that God did for Moses and for his nation, Israel, when God took Israel out of Egypt. 
So the last time this occurs, Jethro sees Israel defeating, or God defeating Egypt, and God took Moses, what God did for Moses. According to Balak, it doesn't work that way. It's Israel, and when God brings, or when uh, the people come out of Egypt. I want you to see this. Because when, uh, when Israel, I'm almost done, when Israel was processing through with Pharaoh, Remember, the people were, were, were growing, and Pharaoh got afraid, and it says, in fact, it was the last time that great dread came upon the people because Israel was multiplying, and the harder they worked them, the more they multiplied, and Pharaoh said, hey, we got to do something with these people. Great dread came upon Egypt, and they began to put them into slavery for 400 years. And then when Moses goes to that Pharaoh, and they release them, and they're able to go off and, you know, to be delivered. We won't get into that, that whole story. But it's interesting to see in that very moment when Pharaoh sees what God is doing, he puts him under slavery. He goes to work. He responds to his fear because Israel's multiplying. All he could see was his circumstances. And here we are in the same situation. When, when Israel is coming toward Midian, and Jethro sees all that God has done for Moses and, and saw what that God had brought Israel out of Egypt. You know what, what Jethro does? It says that he runs out to Israel with his hands high with joy and celebrates with them. You know what Balak does? He has a choice here. These two things are very parallel in Balak's life. Circumstances exactly the same. In fact, the wording is exactly the same. Is Balak going to be a Jethro or is Balak going to be a Pharaoh? So, what's the answer? We've already read it. Balak couldn't see what God had done. He saw what Israel had done. He didn't see where God had brought Israel. He saw where Israel had come from. And he responds to his fear. He responds to his circumstance. And this isn't a Balaam story, but he goes and gets a prophet for hire and says, I want you to curse him. And I won't get into that story today, but... This is a a great illustration of, of Scripture showing us in Balak, king. All the, am I going to be a Jethro? Am I going to be a Pharaoh? So if you were to go back and you look at Exodus chapter uh, 1 with Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 18 with Jethro, Numbers 22 with Balak, you really begin to see this picture that's very intentional of Scripture setting this up in Balak. And so I would offer to us as a non-Israel, we are a Balak and we have an opportunity to see the circumstances all around us. And you can either see that God is very actively involved in every circumstance regardless of how it affects you. You can align with God or you can align with your fear. You can align with God or you can align for your comfort. You can align with God or you can align with his glory or your glory. And I'm just telling you, over and over and over in Scripture, you see this symmetry where God is telling us that if you align with your glory, it brings to misery and death. If you align with God's glory, it leads to joy and celebration with hands lifted high to his glory.
Yeah, it's a complicated illustration. And if it were, if it were singular, I would say, forget it. But we see it over and over and over, how alignment leads to surrender, leads to repentance, leads to lives for his glory. So what is the point of prayer? Well, okay, well, I prayed it that way and God said no, so maybe if I just change my words a little bit, I can still get it what I want. And if I, if I kind of start negotiating with God and tell him all the good that I'll do, if he just, you know, I just I'll rub that lamp again and get God to do my thing. And when God doesn't do our thing, we don't even consider that maybe we're not seeing our life from his perspective. Sometimes maybe God wants things for you that you don't want for yourself. Maybe God wants you to be something that you don't want to be. And so you're living lives in resistance to his plan for your life. And what we need to do is to figure out how to just spend time with him and learn to love what he loves and learn to want what he wants for us. That will always lead us to joy and celebration. So the Lord's perspective, being able to see the world through the Lord's perspective. I believe that's the best habit that a Christian could ever, I mean, every, every discipline that a Christian is given is for that purpose. Instead of being people of complaint, you think about every time Israel complaining, griping, bickering, it leads them, it leads them to worse. Because they've taken their eyes off of God's perspective of what God wants. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there is going to be the valley of the shadow of death in our life. But I will not fear, for you are with me. Over and over, we, we have these promises that no matter what life throws at us, see it from his perspective and walk to life. Why do we war against that so much? Why do we go consulting after prophets for hire to beg God to give us what we want? So I want us to close our eyes, bow our heads, and I want us just to take a moment. And I'll lead us in just a moment, but I want us just to take a moment and, and just pray. And just, just commune. Don't let prayer be some event in your life. Let prayer be your life. Just walking. That's why Paul says pray without ceasing because prayer is not an event. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's just walking in communion with God it's constantly. Every, every conversation, every room you enter is constantly looking at the world from God's perspective. And before you were a Christian, you couldn't see God's perspective. You could only consider your own nature. And there's a lot of people who come to Jesus and they say yes to Jesus, but they continue to walk after their own nature because salvation was a box they checked so they could go to heaven. But, but there is life now, life available now for us to walk in. I mean, when, when is the last time that you literally knelt down before the throne room of the Father and said, woe is me, for I am undone? When is the last time that you felt conviction about sin? And not just the stealing from somebody, but just the, the attitudes that rob us from the glory of God. When's the, when's the last time that we truly were broken 
over our distance between himself and, and us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When is the last time that you even considered to pray, Father, how would you want me to pray? How can I align? How do I align my life with your glory? How can, how can you walk in confidence in your regular life as, as you are going in your regular life? How do you walk in confidence without knowing that, that every step is ordered from the Lord? I believe everybody wants to live with a purpose. I think God designed us to want to live with with a purpose in mind, to know that our life, our words, our our hearts matter. And I'm really really concerned that the more lies that we listen to from government and the world and evolution and everything else, that we've pretty much grown to where, you know, life doesn't even matter. What really matters? Is suicide rates increasing in our country among our young people because people don't know how to live with purpose anymore? We're so separated from purpose and power and confidence because we are so separated from the glory of God. We're not teaching our kids to live with his perspective in mind. And so of course when a large army is rallying their troops at the gate. We consider our fear first. What do I have to do to batten down the hatches? But when you see that everything is ordered from the Lord, everything belongs to everything that happens in your life is an opportunity to give glory to God, not just the good things. Paul said, I've learned to be content whether I have a lot or not, whether I feel good or not, whether I'm in prison or not, whether I'm shipwrecked or not. It doesn't matter. You know what? I can glorify the Lord on a deserted island. I can glorify the Lord in a prison cell. I can glorify God in a surgical center. There is nowhere that I can't bring glory to God. There is no place, there is no circumstance where I can't bring glory to God. I just don't think that we live with that end in mind. And I don't think it breaks us anymore. That's why several weeks ago I began to pray for a revival. A revival that is supernatural, that breaks the heart of God's people, that throws us on the floor of the throne room and where he will be the lifter of our faces. And I believe until that happens, it's going to continue to be just business as usual. You know, when the the doctor comes in and Tells you about the army that's circling your camp. When the boss comes in to tell you bad news, when your portfolio comes in to tell you bad news, you, you don't have to 
You don't have to be dependent upon your circumstances because the Lord's ordering it out. I will lift my hands to him with joy and celebration. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. We've got to be people who expect God with power to answer our prayers because we're meeting the conditions of the prayer life. We're not walking around with sin residue all over us, bad-mouthing people that we live with and people we're in relationship with. And we, got, we live in lives of generosity and care and concern. We're not fortifying our lives with material blessings that have turned into idols that we refuse to call them that. Now we're people who see what God is doing, what God has done, what God has promised, and we align our lives with that as our chief end. According to all of that, would you just simply pray in this moment and just say, Lord, what would you have me pray for? Is there sin in my life? Is there something in my life? Is there some level of unforgiveness that's in my life? Is there someone that I need to fix something with? Is there something I need to fix within myself? Is there something I should be doing? Lord, I want to walk in confidence. How do you want me to pray, Lord? What do you want me to see? Show me great and mighty things. Help me to see it from your perspective. Now, I'm going to warn you, probably you're going to see it from your own perspective the first time you see everything. There's going to be a a moment where you have to consider what you're going to do. And what you do in that moment is the defining moment. Not your first thought. Your second thought is the defining thought. And I want to ask you to join me in praying for a revival. And revival, not a series of services. Revival where our hearts as a, as a body, as a family of faith begins to be aligned and we begin to see God move we begin to experience collectively his favor in our lives and in the lives of our family we begin to see souls saved in the community our hearts begin to break for lostness all around us and we don't just become better people doing good things but we begin to see ourselves as a beacon of hope to lostness we begin to take the perspective that God gives us and and not be afraid to speak into the lives of our coworkers, of our neighbors, and help them to see God's perspective. How many times has our, has our mouths been shut because we can't give God's perspective? Because we're not living in God's perspective. God, forgive us from not being able to align and give that perspective as we go. We're so focused on ourselves. Break us, Lord, I pray. Humble us before you. I pray and I believe that humbling is coming whether we like it or whether we don't. When that humbling comes, I hope that we are already aligned with you so that we can walk in joy and celebration. May you receive glory and honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Will you stand with me please?
I just, I, I, you know, I really don't know how to give an invitation. Um, I just want you to respond where the Lord is leading you in this moment. If you need to just continue to pray what you're praying, just pray that. Just pray that the Lord will continue to just. You remember the old hymn, the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what I pray for us. I, I find myself praying that a lot. I don't know why. I just pray that a lot. I present that the things of this world will just, just grow strangely dim. And we'll be able to, like Isaiah, see him high and lifted up. Lord, I pray that you'd break our hearts. Break our hearts because of our selfishness. Break our hearts because of our stinginess. Break our hearts because of our indulgence. Break our hearts because we don't nurture relationships. Pray, we, we ask that you forgive us because we don't share your perspective. We don't walk in your perspective. We walk around confused like we're double-minded. We don't know how to be stable. One way, one place, another way, another place, or one, one way, one week, another way, another week. Lord, we just, just feel like we're just tripping through life. I just pray that you'd stabilize us. Sin begins to encroach itself in our lives in areas we don't even realize until it's so destructive we don't know how to let go. It's just like a cancer. today, Lord, I just pray that we would lay, just lay it all down. In these moments, just lay it all down and just start from scratch and just say, Lord, I want my life to be whatever you want my life to be. I believe that there are, are people in this room that need to be in ministry, people in this room that need to be mentors, people in this room that need to be evangelists, people in this room that should be missionaries, people in this room that should be counselors just that are on, just on task for you. There should be homes in this room that are models for neighbors. There are workers and teachers in here that are about to go back to school that should be perfect examples of what it would look like for Christ to be in the classroom. Lord, I just pray, I just pray for power upon your people. And I pray that we would let all of the lies that we've believed and all the lies that we've told, let them go and just repent before you. Give us your presence. And help us to stop responding to our fear. Stop making excuses. And start seeing what you are doing and who you are using. For your glory alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.